Hello, folks. I've got a great guest for you today. I think you'll really enjoy hearing his story. I'm joined by Ben Harrison, uh, one of the founders of, of Deal Cloud, a, a great local Charlotte success story. I met Ben back when he was, I'd say, 26 years old. And he was really all in on Deal Cloud already. And I could just tell when I met him uh, that he was one of the people who had the chops to build, scale, and, and ultimately uh, sell, sell, sell the business and, and go on to, to big things. Um, I hope to tell that full story in today's podcast because he and, and the team have done just that. So Ben, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining me. John, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm, I'm glad to be here. You've been a, a good friend for a long time. So um, I appreciate the invitation and excited to, to share a little bit more about what we're building and what we're working on. Awesome. Well, I've, I've told a few, few friends that you were going to be on the, the, the podcast and they were all very excited. So no pressure, Ben. Okay, good. I hope I deliver. <laughs> so let's start with where, where you went to school and maybe the first couple places that, that you worked in your career. Yeah, so North Carolina native. Um, I'm a Tar Heel, went to Chapel Hill and um, studied chemistry and business, which is a, kind of a weird combination. Oh, wow. um, but that, that led to a start um, here in Charlotte. Um, I worked for a couple different investment banks, a firm called Harris Williams as a summer analyst, and then firm called Edgeview Partners, which is um, now part of the Piper Jaffray franchise and investment banking brand. Um, and really fortunate kind of initial foray into, into a professional career. Um, thankful that a lot of those folks took a chance on me and, and, and gave me an opportunity to learn there. So we were basically selling companies, right? Advising, um, advising businesses on a process of either raising capital or recapitalizing their business or buying another company or switching shareholders. So you learn a lot about a business by, by doing that type of thing, I gather. You know, it's a really good experience because you get, um, you know, you're a, a junior person, obviously, on, on those teams with an analyst title, but you get a little bit of ex exposure to the management teams of the businesses. So you're, you're, you're generally working with um, C-level executives, and that's, uh, that's a unique position to be in your, you know, first couple of weeks out of school. So... Uh, <laughs> A challenge, I would say. <laughs> so at what point did you think to yourself that you wanted to be an entrepreneur? Because uh, I, I think there are a lot of bankers and financial types who, who maybe romanticize that, but, but a lot of them don't make the actual leap. But when did you really start thinking this might be a path that I want to pursue? You know, it was pretty serendipitous. It wasn't, I'm not sure it was as much planned or calculated as it was um, just kind of timely. So after working as an analyst, I worked for um, a private equity firm in Charlotte um, that was formed by former Bank of America executives. And we were on the other side of the coin. So we were buying companies. Mm -hmm. And, you know, typically what, what you do in, in that role is you spend a couple of years learning some more, um, still as an analyst associate level person. And you usually go off to business school and then come back into the business after you have more training and education. Um, but DealCloud grew out of that firm. So um, it was very serendipitous. I was kind of presented with the opportunity more than I was, um, you know, a, a calculated move to become an entrepreneur. So serendipitous in a lot of ways. That's great. So, so what was your role at, at Valfurious, which I believe is the, the private equity fund? Still working as an analyst and associate, Okay. you know, evaluating businesses. Um, it was just instead of advising them on a, on a process of raising money, we were spending time um, looking to invest money. So we, were, we had raised a, a fund of capital on behalf of investors and 
we were deploying that money into these businesses to help them grow and, and um, execute on their strategy. And so a little bit different, a little less transactional, a little bit more time spent with a company actually working on the growth strategy over a five to seven year period. That's interesting. I never thought about that, but the investment banker might run a six month or a nine month process, whereas a private equity fund hopefully holds on for five to seven years, but maybe a little longer at times. It's exactly, it's a to, It's funny, it's a totally different game. It's very transactional in the advisory role. The speed is key. The revenue model is fee-based, right? So they, sure. you know, as an advisor, you get, you get paid in, in fees and the way investors are paid is by driving growth of a company. And oftentimes that takes a long time. And so it's a, it's a patience and strategy game on, uh, on, on the investor side, a little different. And, and so, as, as you mentioned, the opportunity with DealCloud really came out of Falfurious. Was that something that was built at Falfurious, or was it conceived at Falfurious, and then you went off and built it? Yeah, it's, um, it's, a, it's a really great story. So, you know, if you think about the big software companies that are, um, that are out there today, Oracle, SAP, Workday, Salesforce, and these are all awesome businesses, right? Mm-hmm. Multi-billion dollar software companies. You look up to, to businesses like this. Um, they built their technology for operating companies. So if you run a restaurant chain or you run a retail system or you run a manufacturing plant, you buy SAP HANA as your ERP, yep. right? Or Oracle solution. And when we were, you know, I was working for a team of very seasoned executives at, at Falfurious um, who had built big companies and had, had, had scaled big systems. And they kind of came in one day and said, hey, we're going to build a great business here. Let's let's put some technology in place. And I have to give them credit because this was... Well, not a lot of private equity funds are willing to invest in technology. That's exactly right. So they were super forward thinking there. They were early to the game in that. This was 10 plus years ago. And we had some internal operating partners at that firm who had actually built tech companies. And so they, you know, in combination with a little bit of vision from the senior leadership and then some execution ability from some of the operating partners, we pulled together a software platform from scratch to run that business. And that was the first version of DealCloud. So it was wow. really conceived, built, and executed inside of that firm. Um, and then once we realized we had a strong technology and a strong tool, um, there was interest from the rest of the community. So our other private equity peers and investors in, in the industry were kind of saying, hey, that's interesting. We would." we would like to use that. Could, could we get a copy of that or could we buy that? And it was really at that moment where we felt like there was a business model and a, and a product market fit for what we were doing. Um, and that was, a, that was a good thesis. So we, we, we spun the technology out and created a separate business. Um, but you know, in large part, the, the vision and the strategy and the original idea was, um, was, was incubated inside of that firm. That's great. So it was incubated inside the firm, but it was also market tested, forged in the market, because you had customers who were ready to get onto the platform on day one. It's it's an astute observation, and you being an entrepreneur um, yourself, having done three or four companies, would know that. You know, we had that product market fit, yeah. and that is... Uh, Low risk. Exactly. So we, a lot of risk removed from the equation. It's still, still risky, but you're, you're taking out a lot of the risk that you, you... You've taken out some of the technical risk. You don't necessarily know it's going to scale. Right. Um, but, you, but you've taken out the technical risk and that you know you can do what you need to do with it and you've taken out the, the product market fit, fit. And also getting the first five or six customers is huge. I mean, that's really 
that makes it so much easier to sell after you have patients zero through five, right? That's exactly right. You've got minimum viable product. And mm -hmm. we were at that point, we were actually well past MVP. You've got demand and clients, you have revenue, mm -hmm. right? So it was um, unlike a traditional startup or, or formation of an early stage business, it was really a bit of a jump start, yeah. right? Like we were out of the gate and, and halfway down the track, um, you know, in the first couple days and weeks of, of spinning out the business. Is it the most senior level management, you know, the B of A executives that you talked about that start bringing this up? Is it is it you and Rob? Is it a managing director or who, you know, I don't need to know the individual, but yeah. like what, what level of person really sees this fit and says, hey guys, this might be a business here. Sure. So I think, you know, it's interesting. If you look at the firm at that time, it was formed by Hugh McCall and Mark Oaken, mm -hmm. former CEO and CFO of Bank of America. They're... A little bit of a title there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, just legends. Um, and they, the bank had incredible technology. If you look at Bank of America, mm -hmm. I mean, I think the multi-billion dollar technology spend, 60 plus thousand employees dedicated to that. And they had run and managed that. And so they had a very good understanding of technology. And so, so a lot of the understanding and vision was there. And then um, Ed, who was one of the early partners, really founding member of the firm and, um, and Rob Cummings, um, both of them had deep private equity experience. So when you take the senior leadership that had built and scaled a technology or, I mean, Bank of yeah. America is a bank, but in large part a technology business as well. Just, just to put that in perspective for folks, and this is, this is a number that I've heard in public, so I don't mind sharing it. Um, I heard one of their executives speak at an event on Sand Hill Road, and he, he said that they, at their peak, they spent $18 billion on tech and ops in one year. Yeah. That, that's just an unimaginable amount of technology spent. That's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. You think about that in comparison to you know, some of these high-flying startups, I mean, that technology business is so much larger, you know, than, than some of those companies. So it was really interesting to watch that knowledge of operating a business at that size and then industry-specific experience that Ed had, had and Rob had, had and some of the other people at the firm kind of come together and build a software platform that was, yeah. you know, custom-built for that use case. What was going through your mind as they started talking about this? Did you volunteer and say, hey, I'm in, or did they kind of conscript you? Or just walk, walk the, the listeners through your thought process. One day you're coming in, and I'm an analyst, and then there's a transition period, and then you wake up in a startup. Even though it's a less risky startup, it's still a startup. <laughs> yeah, sure. So it's, um, you know, you've got that traditional path, career path and trajectory of working in banking and being an investor. And the natural thing for me to do at the time was to go back to business school. And you do that to refine your education and get more experience with these cases and, and these companies so you can be a better investor. But I think one of the things a lot of investors know is that if you have a little bit of operational experience with companies, that, that, that gives you a little bit more of an edge in, in your approach to evaluating these, these companies. And so um, it was a, it was a, a natural and, and normal progression for somebody in my role at the firm at the time to go get some operating experience or to go to business school. And so instead of going to business school, they, you know, it was decided at, in large part, you know, amongst everybody that, you know, Ben, you could have an opportunity to work on this business instead of, you know, true education instead of doing it in the classroom. Well, it's funny. I, I got an MBA at, at Duke's Fuqua School and I tell people I learned more in every single year that I was at Amentra than I did in the entire MBA program. And I got paid to do it. So. How many team members did you have there? Uh, oh, at Amentra? Yeah. yeah oh, geez. I, we, we, 
but well now that team I think is about 500 or 700 people but but when I joined the mentor I was employee number eight by the time we sold I, we were 130 and by the time I moved on about 200 yeah that's a business school case study right yeah, there to, exactly on that was, many people well and and the crazy thing is when you a company that goes from eight people to 130 as quickly as we did that's eight very very solid professors <laughs> you, you probably beat us how fast did that happen that was I joined in 2003 and then we sold in 2008 okay yeah. awesome level we started in 2013 and we got to 215 by September of 2018 so oh that was goodness. the fastest growth I've ever been oh my, what's that a month I mean that's uh, uh, yeah, yeah. It, uh, yeah. If, yeah that's you figure that's 40 people a year on 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 average so yeah you're adding three every a month every month but yeah. it, as you know the growth is lumpy there's there's month you, you'd go six months without hiring a person and then all of a sudden you hire 12 in, in one month and you don't have any processes in place to to support it and sure. these, these are all the things I'm sure you you experience that I, I remember reading about deal clouds new office which I'm going to see on Wednesday or somebody was telling me about it and and that's amazing to think about I think back to when you guys were in the Packard place office I think when I met you and there were three or four of you working in that office so it's pretty crazy to look back on that we uh yeah we those were exciting days but um but painful ones when you're when you're just a team of four or five so uh we're glad to have a glad to have a large team and and a lot of capable people working on it now that's for yeah. sure yeah it's, it's amazing when you look at what you can deliver now compared to what you could deliver back then i'm sure that's very gratifying for you you know it's um it's a it's an interesting point because you know you achieve these different moments and inflection points in these companies and you're a $10 million business and a $50 million business and a $200 million business. Mm -hmm. And, um, each, each of those stages has a set of new challenges, mostly execution challenges, right? Building, scaling teams, training teams, building great product and delivering that. Um, but it gets more, you know, the further along you go, the more fun it gets, right? Absolutely. You got bigger teams, you got really smart people who have joined the company who are, who are changing the business at a rate that, um, it hadn't been changed in the past, so it, um, each, each, each new stage for us has been better and better than the past. And while you, know, you look fondly on um, early days, I think we're having more fun now than we, um, than we ever have. You know, it's getting easier and the software is just so strong. Well, I want to I talk about that a little bit because I know that that, that evolved. But, but first, did you invest your own money in the company? Did they give you an opportunity to do that when you joined? We, we did. We, um, it was a uh, you know we we bootstrapped the business um, in in the early days and um, you know the the founder certainly um, certainly backed the company. Mm -hmm. We were fortunate. I did. I I, um, I invested. I think every penny I had, but that was a, <laughs> that was a long time ago. So I didn't have very many pennies. Um, but the, the the interesting thing about it was we we touched on it earlier, the company was out of the gates and it had some revenue. So we actually achieved profitability and kind of sustainable growth early on, right? It wasn't, um, it wasn't breakout pace, but we had a very strong customer base, um, very loyal private equity and banking clients who were, who were paying us a fair bet for, for the tool. So did Falfurious fund it or was it just the principals or? So we, um, they did not. So, so Falfurious investment strategy is middle market private mm -hmm. equity, and with their investors, um, with their investors, they were going after much larger sense. companies. Yeah. Right. So there were 
some local kind of Charlotte folks who um, who who threw in the hat a little bit okay. to, to do that first round of capital, which which wasn't a huge number, right? I mean, we um, and it's probably not hard for guys like you and Mark to say, hey, we're starting a software company. I'm gonna pass the hat around. <laughs> they are um, had had very successful careers um, even prior to Falfurious, so uh, we were we were fortunate to have them involved. Uh, you know, I think in the early days their brand and their achievements um, and, and their involvement with the company helped establish credibility, right? And we were, we were able to, to leverage that to, to grow the business. That's awesome. So, so there's no institutional funding at, at this point. Um, how, how far along was the product? I know you had a product, but how far was it from the vision that you guys had or the roadmap that you had at the time? It, it's, it's, it's so funny when you when you look at the original version versus where we are today, it's almost unrecognizable. Okay. Right. I mean, the 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 first version we released worked. It added value for our clients. It performed. It you know it was good software. Was it SharePoint based at that yeah, point? Yeah, we borrowed Is that what some, I heard? Okay. We used some SharePoint. We borrowed some third party components, but it. It, it met the need. It met the industry need and, and the demand we were seeking to meet. But like every great software company, I mean, you have vision of all of the things you want to do. And I think we knew we had a pretty pretty big vision. We wanted to bring in a lot of data sources. We wanted to have a very sophisticated API. We wanted a user experience that was second to none and felt like yeah. you know um, a consumer product. And you can't have all of those things, you know, when you first get started. Yeah. So. Um, those, those days, I think what's interesting is talking to clients who've been with us for the 10 year ride and, yep. and having watched their experience on the technology, watch that evolve. Um, I think they're excited to see where we are today and oh, even, more, even more than that, excited where we're going. Cause right. The R and D budget now is, you know, at so, a whole so nother let me level. Ask you this for the, those first few clients, do they still get the same pricing? Or are they have you scaled that? Because I know most most founders I talk to are very loyal to those first few legacy clients and keep them on the legacy pricing. But I've also heard of others who say no, if the the product needs to stand on its own and everybody pays what they pay. Um, it's a great question. So there certainly are a couple clients with legacy pricing in our in our um, in our client base. But when we went out to market originally, we went out as a premium solution mm-hmm. at a premium price point. It's always easier to move backwards than up that chain. That's right. And so, you know, our competitors are Salesforce and Microsoft Dynamics and your big generic CRMs from Oracle and SAP. Um, And we made a conscious decision to price above them because we felt like the value we were delivering was higher. And I think we were right. Um, We had to do some discounting in the early days, but I think at this point, um, pretty much everybody's on a retail rate. We may have a couple stragglers in there, and if they're not, they'll be there soon. So I meant to ask, was Rob the only other employee who came over, or did anybody else join the initial team? So we had, um, so Rob and I started together, um, it was really just us in the beginning, but we had a couple contractors that we had hired to um, punch up the product and really put it in the cloud. Right, okay. so the first move was making a SaaS product, a cloud-based SaaS product, and so we spent some time and effort doing that. Um, and we we had a couple outsourced team members as contractors and consultants and things. And originally, they joined the business. So uh, you know, I think our three or four earliest employees are still a big still part of the company. company today. That's awesome. Yeah. So 
you, you mentioned you know you had a handful of clients who came to you saying hey let's let's make this a product so those were obviously your first clients can you talk about what the sales process was for getting the first outside client not even who they are but just how do you go about getting that first outside client that didn't come to you asking for the product to begin with it's interesting we used to talk about now we run a very um Automated. Sta- well, standard enterprise sales process, okay. right? That we're modeling after the bigger companies that have done this before and figured this out. But um, in the early days, I think the key was um, showing the technology and that there was more value than the generic tools and then um, helping these these firms believe that the business model was there, that the product market fit was there, and that we were going to be a around. big successful yeah, company. Yeah. And so, and I, I don't want to say selling the dream because you weren't selling the dream because you already had it to show, but it was it was really more about selling yourselves. Yeah, really. the confidence. Yeah. You know, making sure they were confident in you that the business was gonna. And how did you, how there. did you get in front of them? Were you just cold calling, or you 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 call? I mean, I guess it's a fairly insular industry, so you can get connections and people maybe even leaving one fund going to another. But what, what were the early hunting expeditions like, I guess? We started we started with the people we knew, for sure. So we went to our, our, our friends and, and close colleagues in the business, the people that we had worked on transaction with and done deals with. We went to the firms that we had worked at prior. And we, we had this saying in the early days, we called it kind of top down, bottom up, middle in. So okay. the, the goal was to spend time with these organizations from every direction. You know, if you if you could have the lowest man on the totem pole spend time with you, you should do that. If you could get to a senior partner, you should do that. And if anybody in between were willing to take the call, make sure you spent time there. So we, we went at it from every direction. So you mentioned that you had a couple contractors who joined the company early on. I seem to recall, was there an offshore team as well that was developing the tech for We you? did. We used, um, we used a couple different offshore teams over the years. That worked very well. Some of those teams we moved onshore, okay. right? So as we progressed and the company got larger, um, we were able to bring a lot of development resources this way. The costs grow with that, but the quality increases in a lot of things, um, just the security, general things that our industry was requiring of a technology sure. like this. We kind of had to pull a lot of this, a lot of that capability in-house and onshore. Well, my experience with most SaaS companies, but especially with CRM is Churn comes not from the, not not from the software being bad, but more f- from the support just isn't there. I, I feel like if a consultant comes in and helps somebody implement Salesforce, or if you're a big enough client to where you get a professional services team from Salesforce and it's set up correctly, you're much more likely to use to 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 use the software. Um, First off, is there validity to this? Is the main driver of churn just the lack of customer engagement in the upfront, getting it set up correctly, or is there more to it than that from a churn perspective? You know, I think that's such a key metric, and we work in a, a pretty high-maintenance industry, right? So we're dealing with financial services clients, professional services clients, mm-hmm. and today we've grown the business. We have law firm, legal clients. Um, the number one thing that we built before we built sales and marketing, before we built um, customer acquisition engines, was we built really strong client success teams, account management teams, onboarding, implementation services, absolutely. And I think because we were operating, because we don't operate out in that big 
wide market where it's manufacturing and retail and you know we're in this financial service space where everybody talks to each other they know who that the, who the vendors are they get references on them before they even engage with them we, we knew we had to invest heavily there and so i think our churn metric over time has been just one of the things we really hang our hat on we rarely lose a client that's great rarely it's been just a couple percentage points every year since inception so um i think you're to your point all SaaS companies have to invest heavily there especially yeah. if you're going to be industry specific one of course i'm shameless plug for serve professional service companies since right. that's what i know <laughs> but but i do think that it's interesting because I've got a couple friends who started a, a CRM company that they're selling into um, NCAA uh, program, sports programs. Interesting. Yeah, and um, they felt very strongly, their, their CEO felt very strongly that they weren't touching the customer enough. And he unwound several things that they had done to try to automate customer interactions. Get rid of this stupid chatbot. Pick up the phone and call them. You know? Absolutely. And and and. To hear him tell it, you know, the, the churn went down, but more importantly, the customer engagement goes up and, and just the level of usage, which is really what drives churn down to zero. If your customers are using the software every day, they're not moving off of it. That's exactly right. I'm, uh, so CRM for NCAA, that sounds fun. It's, it's fun. It's a I good in-market. I, I hope to get the, uh, I hope to get the, the, the two founders uh, onto the podcast because their story is interesting. They actually bought a smaller a much smaller company that had, that had sold one or two customers and they were selling it to the coaches of individual programs. And yeah. these guys, their insight was the CRM is also compliance. And NCAA, there were a lot of scandals going on around sure. recruiting, illegal calls being made, and all of these arcane rules that were being broken. And I think their biggest insight was that this is CRM, but more importantly, it's compliance. So rather than selling to the individual programs and then going door to door, let me move from baseball to soccer to football, they sell to the president or to the athletic director because those are the folks at the end of the day that are going to lose their job when, when a scandal There's a violation breaks. or something. Yeah, when, yeah when that makes sense. That's a good idea. Yeah. Yeah, these guys are brilliant. They they came from Mementra as well. So that's a great idea. Yeah, that's a good. That's timely for that end market right now. Yeah, yeah, they're doing really well. And it's funny every time there's a major scandal that breaks, I text one of them and I'm like, "Hey, this can't be bad news for you." There's a there's a sale <laughs> opportunity behind that. So so looking back, how much did working at Harris Williams, Falfurious, Edgeview, uh, prepare you for the buzzsaw that is launching a new company? Obviously, from an industry perspective, it, it prepared you mightily, but did it prepare you on some of the, the craziness that goes into starting a company? I think what you said is the, the exact point, which was I was very fortunate to be trained at those firms. Um, great industry education, wonderful networks, um, and, and really strong knowledge of what we were trying to build from a vision standpoint for that end market was in good position from that standpoint. I had worked on teams and I had worked in collaborative environments and helped manage deals and investments, but I hadn't previously scaled a team, gotcha. like built a large number of employees. Mm -hmm. And I think looking back, you know, our, our team is we've got 200 plus people focused Ooh. on the financial services business now. We have 650 people globally in, wow. our, in our combined companies today. Um, and that was, I was naive at the time to know how much effort and work it would be to, um, to build a team like that. I mean, that is the core of the business. Those people 
um, are the contributors. They have built the company, um, so they're they're the you know the lifeblood of, of the business. So that was a new experience for me. You know, there's a lot of things that go into it. You got to have a great product, right? So you work on product strategy. You got to have a great sales motion, so you drive revenue for the business. You've got to have a really strong delivery mechanism. Got to have strong recruiting at some point. In the yeah. early days, recruiting doesn't matter as much. But. I mean, we've got full time. We've got a big team focused yeah. on just building the team at this point. And um, so all of those building the building the, the the business units and the appropriate people in each of those business units to drive success for the client for the product was really interesting. Um, so I'm thankful to have now gone through that experience. So I'm curious about one dynamic that I've seen play out a lot in, in Charlotte in particular. You were obviously a big banking town. Um, and coming from Foul Furious, which as you mentioned comes, uh, you know, Hugh, Hugh and Mark's background, the pedigree from a banking perspective is absolutely world class. I think you could go anywhere in the world and people want to hear what Bank of America bankers have, have to say. Um, in many ways, DealCloud is competing in a West Coast world. Um, sure. Where where a Bank of America might not carry quite the same pedigree that it does in banking. Did did you ever feel that dynamic of being more of a an East Coast company in a world that's dominated by the West Coast? Um, and and I guess it probably works in the other direction. A West Coast competitor might have faced big hurdles in the other direction, not understanding the industry the way that you guys might. Um, is there anything to that, or did you ever see that dynamic playing out? So I think. Um it's a great question, and I think, I think from a funding standpoint, we were an East Coast-based company. Gotcha. But I think from a, I think from a vision standpoint okay. and an operational standpoint and an industry-specific building, an industry-specific SaaS business, we were very much a West Coast-based software okay. company, right? Yep. Um, so we were building, and we still are building a very large industry-specific. SaaS business, I mean, our addressable market from an in-market standpoint represents $5 trillion of the economy, which is tremendous. Wow. Right? Just in North America? Uh, globally. Globally, okay. Um, $5 trillion in the global economy. That's not our TAM, but that's just the global spend in sure. our in-markets. And um, so you got to think very, when you're thinking about an, a market, an opportunity like that, you need to think very big in terms of software. But I think, you know, you see West Coast Company raising massive CDE rounds. We didn't do that. We were able to build and scale a very large business. Um, in a profitable manner. And so I think we're proud of that, um, of that dynamic and of, of building that way. But from a vision standpoint, be in the next workday and be in the next you sure. know, Salesforce, we're, that's where we're headed. What was the biggest challenge DealCloud faced in its first year of existence? Oh, and, I, and I've often on this podcast described the entire process of starting a company is a, a series of identify the biggest bottleneck and fix it and then find the next bottleneck and fix it. So maybe it was more than one thing in the first year, but does any one thing stick out as the hardest, hardest part of that year? There's so many challenges. I think one of the things, this may not be a specific enough answer, but I think knowing where to spend your time, right? So if you're a team of four or five or 10 or 15 or even 20 to 30 people, making sure that you're spending every waking moment or every hour where you're productive from a business standpoint on things that are driving growth for the company. There's a lot of, you can get sidetracked working on a lot of things. Mm -hmm. Putting the plan together, executing to the plan, and making sure you're spending your time doing what you've agreed to with your partners and your investors is, is a really critical thing in the early days because there's a lot of ways you can go. I think that's great advice. What was the highlight of the first year? If you talk about what you 
what was the number one thing you took away from that first year? Do you do you remember that far back? It was ten years oh, ago. Oh man, so. <laughs> barely. Um, many parts of it, I think we've we've blocked out of our minds too. Um, no, those were fun and exciting times, and I think just reflecting back on it, probably the wins, sharing a new customer edition or sharing a big successful client outcome, and sharing that with the team and the clients is really special. Like. For many of our the clients who've been with us for you know eight to ten years, we have an unbelievable relationship with these people. I bet. Right? I mean, they um, they feel like owners of the product. I'm sure, and and <laughs> they are. Yeah. Right. I mean, they have they have um, driven the roadmap. They are our biggest advocates. Um, they're great friends and partners. And and in those early days, if they got on board, they actually got a lot of what they wanted. Sure. Right, you can you can develop for them and deliver on their. Do they requests. have Jira accounts? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, <That's good>. Sorry, <laughs> folks. <laughs> so, when was the next capital raise? So we did a couple little ones here and there. Um, we there was a very fortunate moment in in the business, and this came early on. Uh, Rick Cashel joined the company as as our CEO, and we raised a, a small bit of capital from financial technology fund called Fintop Partners. And that was one of the kind of key moments that helped us get to the next scale. Um, and was that more about getting Rick on board or the funding or was it, did you need both? It was kind of all of the above. I mean, we were, we were upgrading team and talent to make sure we could scale and, and build and grow a global team. And we need a little bit more capital to do that. So while the business was growing nicely and profitable and things like that, we, it, that was a point where we really felt like we could juice it. Right, like yep. invest in additional dollars. There was low risk to that, and, and high returns for the people who so, were coming so in. So, where was DealCloud at that point in terms of number of clients, employees, kind of run rate? Do you remember? Uh, Twenty people. Wow. A uh, hundred and hundred clients, maybe a couple million, million dollars or of recurring were you revenue. About four years into it at that point. Yeah, I have to go back and look at the exact date. <laughs> they blend together now, but a couple years in. Okay. So. And the use of funds was it? It was upgrading talent. Was there anything that needed to be done on the software at that point, or was it just a, a lot? So we um, we did quickly ramp and scale the team. Um, we had, as I mentioned earlier, we had a couple third-party components of the software with SharePoint mm -hmm. and things like that. So we were able to remove okay. some of those technologies we were borrowing from the big companies at that point, which was um, which was a great moment for the business because we were in perfect control of our product and, and of our product's destiny. And so that was a, that was one of those, I mean, each of these businesses has an inflection point, but that was one of those great inflection points for the company where we were able to develop more rapidly. That's right. interesting. We had the exact moment at NextGrid. We, we had won a very large contract. We were relying on very heavily on a third party because we didn't have the funding or the really the R&D chops to build these chips ourselves. And the CEO and myself made a decision one day when this third-party partner just would not play ball and was making life very difficult. Sure. We made a decision to to delay a project by six months while we figured out how to go build our own. We didn't build the core chipset, but we, we figured out how to get much further in control of our own destiny, very equivalent to pulling SharePoint out and kind of building your own thing. And that was the most nerve-wracking time I think of my entire career, but also the most rewarding because when, when we were done, I said, think of what we can do now that we actually control the entire stack now. There's nothing we can't do with this product now because we're not reliant on anybody for any part of it. It's it's a fun moment. We, were we sharing, were we in the same office building when you did that? I, we might have moved. 
we we might no we we hadn't moved in the Packard place we hadn't okay. moved an expert in the Packard place yet this was in yeah this early was in, days. In, this was very early days it was nerve I remember being on the phone with one of our clients and he's like John you're killing me man because he had gotten federal grant money to pay for this smart Excellent. grid deployment yeah. so he had dates that he had to hit and we had no idea when we were going to have the product ready and it was a local vendor to near near him and in their press release when they announced giving us the award they mentioned that and they're partnering with this company sure and so it was a difficult message to deliver um, very difficult yeah, if you had been in the same building as me you would have known I would have heard we would have heard about it <laughs> yeah, you would have heard <laughs> about great. it for sure that's great um, at, at what point did you really start to build out a sales team had you already at this point or is that something that Rick helped you do um, Rick was Rick has a, a deep background in sales and marketing, so he was critical in um, in taking that to the next level. We had a small one, I would okay. say. Um, you know, at the at the time we were, it was a very rifle shot approach. You know, make sure you kind of line up your targets, hit them, knock them down, um, and de- and deliver on a and deliver on a plan. So I would just call it a, a budding team. I mean, it was okay. just a couple people at the time. How big a role did content? play in your marketing efforts and how did that evolve over time it's it's a really good question I think um, there are a lot of there are a lot of good playbooks out there for developing a marketing program in b2b SaaS mm-hmm. um, our clients and our um, our prospects are really they're looking for market defining content that speaks to them and so finding writers and marketers who had a voice in our industry and originally that was us I mean we wrote a lot of that um, a lot of that content and so I think it's important and I think the most important thing is make sure the message is relevant for your for your buyer and your in market so there's a lot of spray and pray strategies um, and I think in b2b SaaS that doesn't work as well Sure. You need to you need to speak to your audience and you need to speak to them with very relevant perspective. So it's a good question because we worked hard to do that and we still do yeah. to this day. We you know we're spending a tremendous amount of time with our clients, with the leaders and the partners of these firms to make sure we understand what their needs are, mm-hmm. and we're using that to drive our strategy both from a content and product standpoint. I'm, I'm on your email list, so I, I always periodically would see deals that get announced come through and it seems like at some point it just really took off was there one moment when the sales engine really started to click or was it multiple inflection points there are probably a lot of inflection points but really if you look at the chart it's very linear Mm -hmm. not like straight up almost um it there's a little bit of a a herd mentality in our in markets so in the early days um you know you work on that selling the confidence and, and, and making sure the buyers believe in, in the team and the company. But as soon as we got past that, which was pretty quick, right? As soon as they, they realized, hey, this, this technology is built for the professionals in our end market and they see their peers in the end market working with it, that's that moment where, where you have that brand equity in the market is a, is a kind of magical moment. Um, and that, that, cool. that, that happened relatively quickly because the in market, there's about 6,000 firms um, in our target market in the financial services business, and you only need a couple hundred before they start talking about it. Okay. Yeah, that, that seems to be common in, in more well-defined industries like, like yours, and also where there's probably not one 
dominant player that you would point to and say they can, they're the Home Depot of this industry. That, I think that's exactly right. So there is an opportunity to build large, strong software companies to compete with the behemoths, the oracles mm-hmm. and the SAPs of the world with the vertical specific focus, right? Yep. And when you, when you pick an in market or a couple in markets to focus on, it's, it's a little bit easier to talk to them Absolutely. Right. Because you're you're using a you're using a message and an idea that's relevant to them where the big horizontal companies have to be generic in their approach to the market. Well, then when they try to build verticals, they try to build every vertical. That's right. (laughs) They are boiling the ocean for sure. (laughs) How did pricing evolve over time? I I know you mentioned that you've always tried to be a premium product, but has have you been able to control pricing a little bit better as the product has evolved and as your reach has evolved and as you've hit that kind of critical mass within the industry? We do. Um, it's, it's a good question. I mean, the price continues to go up. I, it, it always will. Um, I think that's the nature of the market and software in general. But we've always been at the premium price point and our price has moved up in lockstep with the rest of the market. Okay. So we are, I think, as... You know, when we go into a competitive situation, which we're in frequently, there is a case, a strong case for value at our price point, which is above a lot of the competitors like Salesforce and Microsoft and SAP. But I think that value is justified. And so the price has moved up, but it's moved up in lockstep with the kind of the whole market. So we, we started high and it's just stayed high and gone up. Do you have any advice for SaaS startups around pricing? I think you have to look at the pricing number. Mm-hmm. Um, in context of your customer acquisition cost, mm-hmm. of your average sale price. So is the is the average new client that you add and the cost, the amount of dollars you're spending to add that new client, is that a profitable sustainable model? Yeah, sustainable model. And in the early days it doesn't have to be and you could you could raise money to compensate for that, but there has to be a path to that. Sure. Over time. Um, and so anybody who's thinking about that or working on that so, so would you start more from your your cost perspective or would you start more from the value that you add to your clients or is it a kind of a mixture of the two and kind of a, an art of what can I charge versus what do I have to charge? Well, I think you've got to look at the value first, mm-hmm. right? Because that's where your business model, that's, that's where it stems from. So these markets are efficient, mm-hmm. they're competitive, there's options. So yeah. you have to be respectful of the competitive landscape, but... If you have come up with a mousetrap that is better than than the next one, um, you you need to spend time with your in market understanding what the value is because that in large part can set your price, right? If those prospects and those clients and people you're working with are telling you, hey, this is going to save us a couple million dollars or this is going to help us make yeah. X million more dollars, you've got a strong case for, um, for 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 a higher price point. There's an interesting dynamic that just occurred to me doesn't really apply to you. I had Chad Stackwicks on on the podcast last week and he pointed out when you're in an industry, in most industries, the buyer, it isn't their money. It's it's the company's money and they've got a budget and they, I won't say they don't care, but they've got some discretion. And one of the buying decisions they make is, do I like this sales rep? Do I like this person that's selling to me? 
if I don't like them and they're going to charge me $160,000 a year, but there's another group that I like that's going to take me to a steak dinner once a year, maybe I'll pay 200000 That doesn't really apply to your buyers, though, because in many cases it's directly impacting their, mo- their, their money, right? Like they're probably a little bit more bought in on the cause than, say, say a, a, a buyer at a 200,000-person manufacturing firm might be. You know, it's interesting, um, and I think it's a really, it, it's a really good good point. So what we're seeing, there are definitely products and um, and technologies that are sold that way, mm-hmm. with tickets and dinners, and access to the masters, absolutely, and um, that's one strategy. And I think you see that strategy play out with with products that are oftentimes commodity mm-hmm. in nature. Very right? good point. If you can't if you can't go into a meeting and show tremendous value, oftentimes you have to resort to, to buying favor mm-hmm. with a buyer. And I understand that we are still at this stage in our in our market, in our dynamic, where we are defining a new technology and we are mm-hmm. we are setting a course that is so differentiated from the competitive landscape that we we aren't competing in that manner right now. Right. We, we are going in spending time on on the business um, on the business case and understanding what the what the prospect or the client needs and then delivering a solution there and that is actually it's a fun activity right discovering that and showing them a, a tool that can it can add value there that, that's really cool so, so I want to go back to you brought Rick in some investment money I think you mentioned you're about 20 people at that point how were you feeling about the company at that point. In your mind, was it clear that you were going to be successful, or did you still feel a lot of risk and stress? And <laughs> anytime you're at a at a growing company, there's some risk. Obviously, mm-hmm. there's meaningful stress because you're building and growing a business, um, and you're taking care of clients, and they're big clients, and that's exciting. But every day that went by, and every week, and every month that we made progress, it became clear that our technology solution what was a preferred technology in our end market. And I think we had very strong confidence in the beginning, one year in, three years in, and, and that confidence has just built and continued continued to build for our team. Um, and it, it really came from our clients. Like they were validating that what we were building and what we were, what we were bringing to market was where the demand was, right? And that, yes. that's where you feel good about what you're doing and, and, and the confidence comes from. That's really cool. So I want to fast forward a little bit. How long after bringing Rick on was it until you guys decided to sell to NTAP? You know, it's a a really great story. It's so serendipitous. Um, So, I mean, Rick is a a long career as an entrepreneur. He built a technology company for Blackstone. He built another business, um, another technology business before that. And we were were just trucking along. I mean, the business had, had gotten to probably 100 plus people and four or 500 clients. And the most interesting thing about our end market is we were selling our product to these private equity firms. And so one of our one of our clients, um, great client is a um, investor out of Boston called Great Hill Partners. They run the technology solution to help manage their firm. And they said, hey, we, we believe there's a strong opportunity to take technology like this and apply it not just in financial services, but in the broader professional services market, right? Because the business models are so similar, right? These investment banks draw fee-based revenue from advisory services 
Alvarez and Marcel does the same thing. Bain and McKenzie do the same thing. Ian mm-hmm. Y and Deloitte do the same thing, right? Um, Wachtell and Cravath and Allen and Overy, sure. like all of these professional services firms globally are driving revenue and value for their business um, through these professional services. So our technology was uniquely suited um, to move into that end market. And Intap was one of Great Hill's portfolio companies. Um, Interesting. And we were actually running into them a fair bit in the market. So they have all these wonderful technologies that help professional services firms manage and, de- and deliver and then execute on this business. So if you work for a law firm and you're going to take on a new case, right? you clear conflicts on that case, you go through a process of intaking and managing, bringing that business into the firm. Right. Is that similar to a data room in your world, or kind of? It's really just the process of that professional services firms go through in onboarding the new client. Okay, gotcha. right. Bringing that client into the business, agreeing they're going to work with them, yep. clearing the conflicts, making sure that all their um, all their technologies are set up to to kind of maneuver their clients through their life cycle of delivering their services, and. A lot of the investment banks that we were working with had started using that technology suite. Many of the professional professional services and consulting firms and law firms were also using that. And we felt like the businesses, the, the two technologies, literally were sitting side by side, right? So we were starting mm-hmm. to connect them gotcha. and, and at these. And so, did it start as integration between the two, or did it? That's exactly how the conversation started. So okay. it was like these investment banks are using DealCloud to run and manage the origination and the execution of their deals. But then once they do that, they've got to connect that with their systems that clears the conflicts, right? Mm-hmm. And takes this business through their accounting systems and all these other, other technologies that sit inside of these firms. Um, and so we really felt like that suite combined with CRM, deal management, pipeline management that we had built was kind of a one plus one equals three type of equation. That's um, great. So that's where the idea came from um, and, and, and kind of the original conversation. So we were super excited to meet that company. Um, so and, from the time you meet them until the time you you know, signed a deal, what, what did that time frame look like? Oh, it was quick. Um, it's amazing when, it, when it's a good fit, how quickly processes can run. <laughs> that's, that's right. So the business wasn't for sale or we didn't run a process, we didn't have a bank or anything like that. And we just, I think the two teams felt like it was a very natural cultural fit. So mm-hmm. um, we were we were excited about what they had built and where they were going as a company. And when we when we got together, the, vision's, the, the, the vision was just so shared. It was build a professional, professional services and financial services company um, that defines an industry, That's right? Great. So you've seen Guidewire do it for insurance, mm-hmm. right? You've seen Viva do it in healthcare and life sciences, and, and you know we're doing the same thing in financial and professional services. It's awesome when it works out. We, um, when, when we sold a mentor to Red Hat, Red Hat had a track record of a couple of rocky, um, rocky acquisitions. acquisitions. Sure, yeah. yeah. And, and I think it's public knowledge, you know, the Sigwin acquisition, the JBoss, the JBoss acquisition was good for Red Hat, so we were JBoss's biggest partner at the time. And, and Red Hat bought JBoss, and it's a very different product doing a very different thing. When you think about the core Red Hat Enterprise Linux product, which is what they primarily offered prior to the, Red, to the JBoss acquisition, you're selling to the data center. You're selling to the, 
the, the admins that are running the data center who are deciding what operating system sure. to put and they're sizing the, 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 the data center. When you're selling middleware, you're building applications, you're selling to the business. And so Red Hat, to their credit, realized that, oh wow, this is a very different sale. This, this is, you know, we, it's a consultative sale. And, um, and that's, they, they found the mentra and they, I think again, because the need was so obvious to them, we bought, we paid, I think it was $350 million for JBoss and we're not driving the revenue that we think sure. we can. Um, it was very, it was very obvious that they needed a professional services capability that they just didn't have. And in their case, they were, I think a little nervous. They had just changed CEOs. And I think they were a little nervous about integrating too quickly. So they said, we're going to leave you guys alone for three years. You're going to keep your mentor domains. You're going to keep your website. You're going to keep yeah. your cards. You're allowed to keep your Blackberries. The, the Red Hat employees weren't allowed to use anything that wasn't open source. So Blackberry was out. <laughs> but we were allowed to keep them. We kept our Outlook accounts. And, and, it, and it worked very well. And then they slowly integrated the two companies. Sure. Um, but um, I'm, I'm guessing that your integration probably went pretty smoothly because when it's such a good fit that it's so obvious to everybody, it seems like companies are more motivated to create win-win situations for both sets of employees. Can you maybe speak to what that integration looked like in, in the process? For sure. So our products sit side by side with mm -hmm. each other in the organizations. And so the first key thing is integrating the tools, like mm -hmm. it's just the technology integrations. And um, we were able to do a number of those very quickly. Right, the, you got great cloud-based SaaS mm -hmm. software, and so I think the first order of business was is really creating a connected experience for the client. But that we're hearing from them that that is what that that is what they're looking for. One front office solution that connects prospecting for new business, originating new business, mm -hmm. signing those engagement letters, and then from that moment actually delivering it. Right. Yeah. And so you've got the idea of CRM, you've got the idea of HR systems, you've got all these software systems that have sold to these individual business units. And our technology is creating a unified, you know, business origination. Now, you get into the generation of invoices and the tracking of time and everything else as uh, well. So tracking of time for sure. Okay. We, we that are, is running the business in a lot of these businesses. That's exactly right. We're, we're not going as far as... Um, the back office accounting. Okay. Right. So there's a lot of mm -hmm. technology. That's a we call it the red ocean. Right. It's a <laughs> it's a it's a it's a competitive area of the market, and we feel like where we are as a front office technology solution for the partners of these firms. Right. If I am a partner at um, at Ernst and Young, right. How do I have a feel and, and connected view yeah. of my business? And so that's what we're after in delivering. So from an integration standpoint, that was really first order of business. We have combined the teams and and the offices, right? So it's a it's a large global business. It's it's 600, I think, and the team grows every day. That's but it's great. 650 people. How, we, how long has Intap been at it? When did they start? So Intap? their history is about. So our history is 10 plus years deep, and they're almost 20. So I think 17 or 18 wow. years. Wow. Um, which is pretty cool. That that is really cool. How different were the two cultures? And I think people act like two cultures need to be identical to have a chance of succeeding. But I think there's a lot to be said for diversity and, and kind of the increase in strength that comes as long as the two cultures don't try to kill one another. Can you, can you comment on yeah. what your guys' culture looks like? So there were really pretty similar. So two high-growth software businesses, mm -hmm. right? And I think um, 
I think those types of companies attract a special type of person. The business is changing constantly and growing quickly and and you need leaders and team members who are ready ready for that environment. Sure. You know, it's fun. No surprises. Yeah, it's fun <laughs> and fast paced. Um, one of the, I think, I mean, we obvi- we had a global team, but as we got together with Intap, their global team was larger than ours, right? So they, bigger business, longer history. And now we've been, each one of these global centers, right? When you look at EMEA and you look at Asia Pacific and you look at these different areas, each one of those global centers comes with some nuances sure. to, to those locations and, and those local cultures and things like that. So one of the, I think, fun parts for us has really been getting exposure to that and building on top of that, right? Kind of riding that momentum. I find when I come home from Singapore, I hand my cards and my credit cards very differently. Speaking <laughs> sure. of cultural differences. <laughs> yeah, it's fun to learn. It's fun to learn the global uh, the global system. So if you hadn't sold to NTAP, what do you think would be different today for DealCloud? Obviously, no crystal ball is perfect, but what, what do you think might be different? Oh, gosh, I think we'd be doing the same thing. I, I think we'd be building for this end market and, mm-hmm. and executing on the vision. We just happened to find a team and a company that shared that with us so passionately that it made sense to go faster, right? And what we've been able to do is pull resources and combine really strong technologies to create an even further differentiated solution, mm-hmm. right? So, I mean, the competitive landscape is real, and I think we just took another step forward in terms of defining a market and defining a technology that will change the way bankers, private capital investors, consultants, accountants, lawyers mm-hmm. think about their day and think about the software that they that they use to support their day. So we'd probably be doing the same thing, but now we're just doing it faster. Doing it faster. Yeah, exactly. And I think you told me a couple of the deals that you're working on these days. They're, I don't know if an order of magnitude bigger, but they're significantly bigger. Um, can you talk about why that's important and why it's also awesome? Yeah. Oh, it's, um, you know, as you get but as you have a big global team, you can deliver global business, right? And so that is such an exciting moment where there's all these big global firms we want to do business with, right? Publicly traded banks, right? The top 10 investors in the world, right? The Carlisle's and CBC's of the world, Apollo, like we, you know, these becoming a service provider and becoming a partner to these firms requires a certain um, a certain scale to your business. We have that now, and that's that's a lot of fun. I mean, the deals are bigger, the 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 clients are larger um, than they were years ago, and one of the unique things is economies of scale and doing business at that level. Um, so, the, the service level is the same. Um, we just we just deploy that across the world. So it's been fun, and that's definitely fun fun to see. I'm sure you weren't thinking about ever sell well you probably wanted to sell to Carlisle or Apollo but it was probably hard to imagine that when you and Rob were huddled up in Packard Place <laughs> yeah it, it it was I think we always knew we were going to get there and we could do it um, but obviously in the early days um, you've got to have the infrastructure to support the big global clients yeah. and you just don't have it in the first year a couple years um, but we do now and and we have now for a long time and you know we're one of those those kind of market leading SaaS companies that's achieved great scale, so it's fun. That sounds like it. Do you have any regrets as you look back on this whole experience? Oh, tons. <laughs> uh, I mean, the number of mistakes you make on the way up, are, um, there's a lot of them. Mm-hmm. And there are many things that I look back on and say, oh, we made bad decisions. But all of those were in the name of growth. And I think 
going through those experiences are, are, are important to make sure you don't repeat them and that as you get to those you become a big company, right? You've you've kind of crossed a lot of those mistakes off the list. Yeah. So. Well, that's the thing. I mean, I think those mistakes as much. I, I don't necessarily call my mistakes regrets. I think I think mistakes that are fatal are, are, are regrets. But but you couldn't have learned all of this without the mistakes, right? It's uh, it's it's why this was a better experience for you than any level of business school could have possibly been. Because in business school, you're not allowed to make you're not making real mistakes. There's no consequences. No, they aren't real learning experiences the, the way that, that they are. Um, but, but, but I agree. I think that anybody who doesn't have regrets or look back and say there are things they, they would change, I think isn't, isn't being honest about it. Or, or maybe they're just choosing to focus on, on, on the happy, happy path stuff. <laughs> That's healthy. I think, I think you gotta, I think you gotta do a postmortem and look at, um, and look at when you lose a client. Or yeah. when you when you lose to a competitor, and you've really got to dig in on each one of those situations and learn from them and get better. And we do that. We do that consistently now as a team. I mean, we have a process for kind of uncovering that at our business. That's great. And systematically like evaluating it. Yeah. Well, one of the hardest things about doing a podcast like this. This is my tenth interview now, and um, the hardest part is the editing because you go back and you listen, and you're like, God, I suck. I'm really awful <laughs> at this. Why? Why did I say that? But but. But you get better at things because of that. So sometimes going back and doing the postmortem yeah. is is great. One of the things that I'm really interested in. I thought all the podcasts were straight through. Yeah, so yeah, I'm glad to know that. I mean, there's a couple parts I may want to edit out of this. <laughs> we we I can hook you up, man. I'm all getting right. good at editing That's stuff great. out. Thanks. Um, <laughs> although you've been great, make Nothing me look good. To be edited. But I think that when you when you look back on on the the process and and building the company. Th those are the real learning experiences, seeing what we did wrong. But again, I think what's really interesting to me and that I'm starting to experiment with in some of the work that I'm doing with a couple of my clients um, is a pre-mortem, which is before I start the project, what are the ways that I'm going to make this fail? <laughs> what are the things that are going to happen? And I think, I honestly believe that that may be more powerful in the long run than even the postmortem is. I think we're going to add a stage to our process <laughs> now after hearing that. That sounds like a pretty good idea. Well, it's just if if you think through how something can fail, you can, I think you can head it off. You're more likely to be able to head it off at the pass. You're not going to be surprised by it, and 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 I think instinctively we do that. But I think we instinctively do that internally if we're on a team of ten or fifteen or twenty people, you know. It's harder to coordinate that without making it part of the process. That's so. right. Yeah, that's interesting. That's a good idea. I, I think I'm serious when I say we might do it. Take you up well, on thank it. Thank you. <laughs> I'm going to copyright it or trademark it. There you go. <laughs> Put it into a product and sell it as a subscription. I'm Even sure better. I read it somewhere and didn't invent it anyways. But <laughs> So I often talk to bankers or, or private equity people who want to move into operating companies and, and most of them never do or, or find it not to be what they expected. Do you have advice for anyone thinking of making the jump now that you've done that? It's different. I think you, you just kind of evaluate the, the two things for what they are. So if you're an advisor or an investor, you're probably going to look at a lot of different companies. You're going to help a lot of different businesses you know, do a transaction or you're going to invest in a number of different companies to, to put capital work. And that gives you a little bit of variety, right? So you get to you get exposure yep. to these different teams, and you also learn their business models, which can be fun because you get pretty educated on the different industries and in markets, which I think is super healthy and makes you smart. Uh, it's just it's just a great way to spend time. On, on the operating side, 
you know, you go really, really deep on one thing, right? You, you, you need to become an incredible expert in your market. You need an understanding of your, your, your clients and, 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 the, and the groups you're working with at a level that is as good as they understand their business or better. Mm-hmm. Because in large part, you're going in to try and help them solve a problem or improve um, a process. And so I would just encourage folks to, to kind of really understand these things for what they are. Um, and it's not that advisory work or investment work is surface level. It's just, you it's, know. I think it's one angle of it, right? It's, yeah. It's, it's just, a, it's a lot of, it's mm-hmm. a lot of businesses, a lot of models. And you need to understand them all. On the operating side, you got to go, you got to get in the weeds so deep. Sure. You know, and that's how you're going to beat the competition, and, and that's how you're going to provide value for clients. What about folks moving in the other direction, maybe who are operators and who say, hey, I want to get into banking or private equity or venture capital? Well, you see that. I mean, you see that more and more now, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, the, the venture and private capital markets are in a bull market, right? I mean, we've got a 35-year track record of... Um, I think I read that Carlisle raised an $18 billion fund in yeah, the last 12 months. Apollo raised, I think, 23 billion. 23, yeah, I read about that as well. Crazy. Um, unbelievable. And But what's amazing is if you look at the end market, it's still small. So if you look at the value of all the publicly traded equity and debt in the world, and then you look at the value, the total value of venture and private, private equity, it's a very small piece of the pie. And so what we're experiencing, which has been a, a trade win for our business, is we're seeing, because of the returns in the SIN market, we're seeing capital flow from the public markets to the private markets. Okay. Hence the 18 and $23 billion exactly. rounds. <laughs> so you got a secular bull market there, which is awesome for us because that's an art in market where we mm-hmm. spend time. And so, so our, our, our industry is getting bigger. And as a result of that industry getting bigger, there's more competition. And what you the, the fundamental thing is the same. You're still trying to grow companies. So these operators are becoming more and more valuable. So if you started as a management team member of a business and you spent 20 or 30 years learning how to grow and scale companies, you can be a very effective investor. Sure. So I think, I think the key for folks who are going that direction is just make sure you have enough experience so that when you get involved, when you're in that game, you can add value to those companies. Help grow. And I think for anybody who is looking to do that, they should read the hard thing about hard things. That's the best book out there. Yeah, and and it touches directly on that because Andreessen and Horowitz both were, were excellent operators, obviously, and, and created just a fantastic venture capital fund. Yeah, I think my favorite scene is in the book is when Ben Horowitz is he's talking to the team about making their quarterly number, making their yearly number, and he looks at the team going to the meeting and he says. If you don't win this deal, we're shutting the company down tomorrow. <laughs> and they came, they came back and won it. Um, but that's a, spe- yeah, that's yeah, a, that's a great it, read. It's a really, really special book for sure. Um, so just full disclosure for folks, Ben and I recently invested in the Charlotte startup together. Uh, ben, do you do much investing these days? No, not really. Um, so I just I just dragged you into this one. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Um, not really. I mean, we're, we're spending the majority of our... Um, of our time building building this company, sure. um, and so um, obviously, you know, you've got friends and family who start ventures, and you mm-hmm. want to spend time with them and back them and stuff. So, you know, one or two little things here or there, but hopefully it goes well. Right? So, so you primarily look for friends or family, or just something that's well, somebody you know really well, you yeah. you know that is uh, <laughs> going to be a good steward of your capital. 
What do you think most founders get wrong in the process of raising capital, especially in those smaller rounds? I'm not talking about the big follow-on C, D, and E rounds, but the, the, the real early rounds, the, the type that you or I might invest in. Yeah, I, you know, I think um, it's important for entrepreneurs and management teams of these companies to really measure the amount of time and effort it takes to raise money in comparison to the amount of time and effort it takes to drive revenue, right? Like raising capital is dilutive to your ownership of the business and it may be necessary you may there may not be another way you may have to have the capital to run the business model which is totally understandable but if you could go in the same amount of time that you'd spend raising around and talking to 500 people and getting 50 people to invest if you t- take that time and effort could you drive that same amount of revenue right and then it not be dilutive to your ownership of the company and i think in today's world we're media and a lot of these companies we we spend a lot of time talking about raising money right and we should i think we should spend more time talking about making money i agree and how you how you drive growth at these companies i agree are you familiar with appian by any chance i don't know that business i'm embarrassed yeah no it's a a, they started out well they they really were known as a bpm company now they've kind of branched out into broader digital transformation but they ipo'd last year and have been a very successful successfully run public company since then still run by by the founding team and i had on one of their early employees who broke out on his own and started a consulting company servicing them and he he just talked a lot about the early days at appian and they i don't think they raised any real money other than bringing on people that they wanted to have in the company it wasn't a capital intensive business but what they did was they started out doing consulting and said well we're gonna see the products that we're building for companies and then build products and their first product was a portal I think they were fairly successful with it but they quickly realized that that business process management was where they needed to go yeah and 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 now it's a, a ubiquitous tool that you encounter in every nearly every fortune 500 company and again the IPO but that was one of the lessons he took was revenue is a very good source of capital not only it's the best source of capital <laughs> it's not it's not dilutive and it gets you much more connected with your your end market and your end users and you know and sometimes it recurs yeah right exactly. and that's so then you don't have to go back out and raise the money again so yeah. it's um, that's a great story. I um, I got to spend some time learning about that company. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's a DC-based company. I think the founders came out of MicroStrategy, if I'm okay, not mistaken. Cool. Um, yeah. So, I'd like to shift gears a bit. You you mentioned that you you started in Charlotte, and then you moved to to New York. Was that to be closer to the clients? Yeah. Um, so as our business started, if you think about our end market financial services. Um, the big global centers, um, New York and London are, you know, are, are probably top two markets in San Francisco and Chicago are close behind that. Okay. And then you hit Houston and some others. And so we, as we scaled, Charlotte has been a hub for the company forever, mm-hmm. right? We started here. Our largest team is here. So we actually just, um, we opened a new office a couple of weeks ago in the Barings building. So uh, we, we took that. We, we looked at that. That was a, a, above our pay grade. <laughs> that is expensive air. <laughs> it, it's, um, it's a beautiful space. We we're so glad to be there. Um, and, and we think it's going to take the company to the next level. Yeah, we did kind of quickly realize that it was more cost efficient to have some sales and marketing in New York, right? Yep. You needed to be able to wake up and do five or six meetings, you know, up and down Park Avenue and Madison Avenue. And um, and so as we were building, we did put a team there to make sure that we could cover clients 
um, and prospects in very efficient manner. Just keep our sales costs low. Sure. Like not a lot of travel, right? Very efficient meeting schedules and things like that. So when are you coming back? I'm here right now. Um, <laughs> no, you know what's so fun about the business is um, it's global now, so we get to spend all this time in, in our key centers, right? So sure. we've got a big team in Palo Alto and San Francisco, so we were out there all the time, which is great. Back in Charlotte, you know, almost every month, I'd say. That's great. Um, and then, obviously, a lot of time in New York and London, too. So uh, this is home, and it, it just it continues to be a big part of what we're doing. That's, um, that's so awesome. I, so I, you know. I think my permanent address is New York, but I still feel very connected. I think the last time I saw you, I I think the last time I saw you, Deal Cloud was inducted into the uh, Packard Place Hall of Fame. Charlotte Hall of Fame. Charlotte Hall of Fame. That's good. (laughs) That's a claim to fame right there. Well, along those lines, how would you summarize the Charlotte startup scene when you started Deal Cloud? Burgeoning. Um, (laughs) I think that's putting it nicely. Small. um, But, you know, if you look back 10 years ago and then you look at where we are today, we have some great companies here mm-hmm. real and we have some really awesome kind of large tech businesses here right mm-hmm. i mean you look at what doug Lebb has built at lending tree absolutely right i mean that's an incredible success story red ventures red, Avid Exchange. that's right we got unicorns tons yeah. of them and um and we're building more so, so i was going to ask what's changed but you've clearly beat me to that punch but <laughs> what do you think has caused that change and what i'm asking specifically is there seemed to be a there's I would characterize where we were ten years ago as there weren't a lot of entrepreneurs, but there were a lot of people who wanted to talk about entrepreneurship. There were a lot of events. I think I probably met you at one or two or three. Do you think that it's because of those efforts that we now have this entrepreneurial scene, or is it something else? Is it just as simple as Bob Yoakum and Mike Prager and Joe Giordano over at Pazer and John Stewart over at Map Anything sure. just put their head down and, and ran through walls like like you you and Ben did or what what do you think is the mixture of kind of what drove the success here? What, one of the things we're able to do is like recruit really really great people here, right? You have awesome large businesses, Duke, Wells, B of I mean, there's just tons of kind of Fortune 500 companies that are are building. Siemens builds all of their gas power factory here that's right yeah and so i think you see some people from these large companies who are very well trained Mm -hmm. very experienced and they may be entrepreneurs in a sense but they're experienced professionals who are saying i'm gonna go and and start a company and they're doing that from a position of strength Mm -hmm. right so i think that dynamic of charlotte north carolina is a great one um and then you gotta hand it to the early folks um you know, like the Red Ventures and the Passport team and Map Anything, you know, the the teams that started early and, and have had great success, you've, you've got to pat them on the back. Um, sure. Because it was a market where it was hard to raise money originally. Yeah. Um, but I think there's in, so much interest now, right? You have these flyover capital firms that are trying to get away from New York and San Francisco. So it's very in vogue. So they're calling it the rise of the rest. That's right. <laughs> it's very in vogue to back, uh, back a, a tech company in North Carolina. Well, which companies on the scene today are most interesting to you? Oh gosh, I—I um, I mean, you mentioned a couple of them. I, The—I um, know the team at Map Anything really well. They've built an incredible product, um, and recently exited as well. Yeah, so. just a couple of weeks ago, right? right. Not uh, long. So, and then um, Bob and Christian at, at, at Passport have been good friends, and and what they're doing and building really looks like it could be a very large business, which is exciting. I agree. The most fascinating thing um, 
to see to me about passport is just how it's evolved and from passport parking to passport and I I think of them as a payment processing company first and foremost I don't even think of them as a transportation company which from a valuation perspective I've got to imagine being a fintech is, is much more the place to be these days but those, those guys really had a vision and have just executed flawlessly on it that's right um, and then I mean like the the up you know I don't want to call them an up-and-comer because these are big great companies now but you know Pacer and stratified and just yeah um you know there's so many so many great ones skipper is kicking ass and that's right yeah go maggie go maggie that's right (laughs) that is it is interesting to me to me to just see these companies and i've i've met recently what i think are a couple of folks who are the next next generation and i don't they're both kind of stealth and undercover but i met two different i want to say 24 25 year old entrepreneurs who Both of them I was introduced through a mutual friend and I'm always skeptical when I meet somebody that young who tells me about their idea and both of them I was just blown away by how far how far they had gotten and and I think that it's interesting because I think that there's probably way more of those than than we even know. I mean the fact that I ran into two of them in the last six weeks is very encouraging to me for sure. That's awesome. We're behind we're behind all these groups 100%. I think um, if there's anything we can do to you know help them or work with them or partner with them or share advice or things like that we've got a really special culture and a great team here and and i know many of our leaders and kind of lieutenants are have have their eye on these businesses and are trying to do what they can to help the ecosystem so we're we're super excited to be here right i mean it's just such a it's an awesome community and the growth of the town i mean like it's just a great place to start a company. We have great airports. We have great schools. We got like reasonable prices. Like this is yeah. a good place to operate a business. You know. So, what's different about the scene in New York? Forget about those last couple points you just said because I do want to come back to that. But what's different about the tech scene, the startup scene in New York when you compare it to where we are today? Again, in light of the progress that's been made here, I, I think we're still far behind the New Yorks and the Austins, and certainly. The San Francisco's of, of the world, but you know I don't spend. Um, we're you spend man, time I'll, selling, yeah, not, I'm, not I'm looking at startups. Embarrassed <laughs> to say, but we we're so so singular singularly focused right now on building the business that I'm 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 doing that really a hundred percent of the time. I, I would say one of the I mean we do have a lot of venture capital clients that we work with who buy our product, and one of the things that I'm hearing from them is that things are expensive. I mean, right now, valuations are high right now. Uh, there's a lot of money that's been raised. There is a lot of money chasing fewer great deals. And, um, and you're, seeing, you're seeing that result in, 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 in pretty meaningful kind of purchase prices for these. For these well, I, I, I think you see that, too, in the private equity world as well. We mentioned some of the eye-popping investments that have been made, but it's not like that many great companies suddenly appear you and you've got to deploy that capital so the multiples have have to go up that that's right i think um you know there's a great bain puts out a annual private equity report every year it's a great read you can just google it and download it um but one of the kind of key takeaways i got from that this year was they were surveying the managing partners of these firms and they were saying you know given the market dynamics the amount of capital you know where valuations are we're having to do things we didn't expect before from valuation standpoint. Mm-hmm. There's more risk and we're uncomfortable, just mm-hmm. self-acknowledged. And they said, you have to pick your spots and sure. be better at your job. So I think there's a little bit of a new reality and it comes back to a prior point we were talking about, you gotta have a strategy for running the companies. 
yeah. got to have great management teams. You have to have a really good operational compass when you get involved with these businesses. And I think firms are spending time doing that. So going back to New York and Charlotte, obviously two banking cities, how different are the banking cultures in the two cities, would you say? You know, it's, it's, um, it's interesting. I, you know, B of A and Wells and Fifth Third and just, uh, you know, SunTrust and like a lot of these companies that have a big Southeast presence now have a big New York presence, right? I mean, they, they are, and I feel like, I, th- I think when you go into the Wells office in New York and you go into the Wells office in Charlotte, there's a similar culture across both of those towns, right? And, and I think the firms that are headquartered and have built in Charlotte and achieved global scale have just kind of put their stamp you know, on the market and, and wherever it is that they're operating, whether it's San Francisco or New York or Charlotte, some of these businesses really have kind of that a unified culture through all these markets. And so there's maybe a cultural personality dichotomy to being in the Northeast or the West Coast or the Southeast or something like that. But I think the brands and the scale, the, the, these big global businesses have done a good job of maintaining their brands across the location. So we're starting to see these connected systems. So, so you talked a little bit about it. Um, I want to dig a little deeper. What advantages does Charlotte offer to, to startups? A lot. Uh, taxes, um, <laughs> housing prices, uh, school system, you know, one of the best airports that's 15 minutes away from pretty much anywhere you could live um, here. I just... I can tell you from having a overseeing the signing of a 24,000 square foot lease in Charlotte and maybe like a 3,000 square foot lease in San Francisco and, and an even bigger lease in New York, the rental rates are restrictive <laughs> in well, other parts of the country. You're, you're talking about beautiful Class A office space for $30 a square foot in Charlotte and you're talking about $30 a square foot per year here. You're talking about $30 a square foot per month in yeah. Palo Alto yeah. these days. And it just, the the operational, just the true operational cost of being in Charlotte is great. And then I think the other thing that oftentimes is overlooked is the ability to recruit and retain great talent here. So in San Francisco, you compete with an, an ever-growing Amazon, Google, Facebook, Apple ecosystem. And that's awesome for those towns um, and those states. But it's tough for the businesses if you have that employee turnover and you have to constantly hire and retrain and things like that. We just, there's great companies and there's competition here, but I think there's a lot of loyalty um, in, in Charlotte and in North Carolina. And we're, we're definitely thankful for our, the team we built here. They're sure. super loyal and been, been awesome and, and are really taking the business to the next level. So, What are the disadvantages to starting a company in Charlotte? Oh, I, I think probably you can point to fundraising being a little bit different here than it is in those other places, but you can always get on a plane and fly to New York and raise money. <laughs> I agree. Again, going back to my conversation with Chad, he, he ran recently for the state Senate or state house. And, um, and I asked him a similar question or I asked him what, what should the city and the state do to drive startups here? And he had an interesting answer that I never considered. Um, I'd thought about it, but I didn't really think of it as as solvable of a problem as it might be. But we don't have a world-class research university in our city. Um, Where you came, you know, where you went to school in Chapel Hill, there's three, right? Right. Um, uh, You know, you you look at uh, 
San Francisco's got Berkeley and, and Stanford. Sure. Uh, you look at New York, you, you've got access. In Boston, you've got all the, all the Ivy League schools right there. And his point was, look, we need to invest for the long haul. Let's put half a billion dollars into UNC Charlotte. For Let's sure. rebrand it as a University of Charlotte, give it its own identity, and just figure out this needs to be the best school in the world at something or a top 10 school at, at something. And I do think that that... That would be one of my one of my complaints about about Charlotte. But overall, I think it's very um, it's a very good place to start a company. I think you can find enough talent, but it's also it's also to your point, people are going to be loyal and stick around for a while, and and it, that makes it a lot easier to build a culture, which in the long run is the only sustainable source of competitive advantage for a company is building a great culture. But if I'm losing an, you know, my employees every year to Twitter or Facebook, it's tough. a lot harder to do that. Yeah. that you know, I'm, I'm with you. I think, um, I think the, the lawmakers could definitely um, support the ecosystem and certainly the education investment would be, would be worth it and would pay dividends. Grant programs and funding programs to help these companies um, get out of the gates at the early stage I think are very effective and we've seen that work in, in a lot of other markets and and it it's we're doing it here too to a certain extent which is great um you know i think the the other thing that we're experiencing though is that we feel very connected to raleigh and chapel hill and mm-hmm. duke and nc state and wake forest and to a certain extent we, we're connected to clemson and vanderbilt right and well, i think of it as a corridor you're, yeah. you're you're right like let's let's take a corridor that runs from atlanta to exactly to, to, to raleigh up up by 85 and you've got all the world-class universities or extend it just a little bit further and you've got uva and virginia tech and and so i, I did some work early in my career during the next grid days with the local energy community and jim rogers had come down and said we need to create make charlotte the energy capital of of the country sure and we we got McKinsey to do some pro bono work and they said yeah well Houston's already got that so you need to be realistic about what you can do let's define what energy is and it turns out it's distribution and generation there's some very real advantages but they pointed out you don't have the world-class universities but if you think about Charlotte as an energy hub and it's a corridor, and we're the we're at the center of that corridor. Then that's very powerful, and I think that applies in more than more than just energy for sure. I, I agree with you, um, and we've got a lot of things we can hang our hat on here. I mean, especially banking and financial technology, right? Well, what Being you, a key one. Same question: What should the big companies do, and and why should they do whatever it is that they should do? You know, um, I think they do. A pretty good job of kind of supporting the ecosystem, the community, and getting involved. I think the 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 thing that they can do that can have the biggest impact, and I I, I want to be sensitive in this comment, but is is do business with these become their customer, mm-hmm. right? So if you um, getting through, and I know you've experienced, but working with the sourcing and the vendor management teams of a big Fortune 500 global business, it's hard. It's a hard kind of long process to become a vendor or a service provider to those businesses. Absolutely. And, and it's funny because you and I are both friends with Manoj Govindan. And that sure. Was, that was his job at both Bank of America and, and Wells. Wells Fargo. Yeah, was, sure. We're spending all this money on tech. We don't need to keep going to the same Oracle, SAP, Cisco, Dell every time we want. If we want to drive innovation, we need to 
bring in smaller com companies. But guess what? The minute they get onto our vendor list, they triple in size or quadruple right. or 10x in size. So let's also use that as a way to kind of build relationships from a banking perspective with those customers. And I think that the work that, that he and the rest of his team did was very successful in that regard. It's, I, but it is such a hard thing to navigate. I mean, trying to get in an MSA with an AIG or a Bank of America is nearly impossible for a small company. And you got to respect you got to respect their security needs. Mm -hmm. You got to respect the um, scalability, the scalability and infrastructure they need exactly. Mm -hmm. And so that that's a very real thing. But I think an early stage company that can claim Bank of America as a company that can drive revenue from them, that's a moment. That's mm -hmm. an inflection point for that business, and they can affect that change. Um, you know, as can all the big businesses in, in, in this town, in this region. I agree. Well, Ben, you're still one of my favorite young entrepreneurs, although you're not quite no, as young as you used right to be. <laughs> <laughs> Before we wrap this up, are there any, any insights into, uh, into the experience that we haven't talked about yet? Or No, thank you for having me. I think um, I appreciate you running a program like this and, and getting the word out on um, all the exciting businesses and what they're doing in the community and what they're what they're building. I've learned a lot watching the program. So I awesome. appreciate you having me and, and glad to share a little bit more about what we're doing at NTAP and DealCloud. It's exciting. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to the uh, second conversation that we have. So thanks again, Ben. All right. All right. Sounds Cheers. good. Bye.